Hello and welcome once again to the Foundry Church Podcast. My name is Joseph. I am the worship pastor here at the Foundry Church in Winter Springs, Florida. I am recording this on uh, President's Day, which is why I'm at home uh, with the rain and the cars going past on the other side of the wall behind me. Um, We uh, started a new series this week uh, called Sacred Space. Uh, It's going to be our our Lent series leading up to Easter, but it's also going to take us a few weeks past Easter, uh, which is going to be pretty cool. We're excited about that. And uh, I actually had the opportunity to preach this week because everybody else was out of town. So uh, uh, this message uh, was sort of focused in on introing the series, uh, setting up sort of the idea of the cosmic Christ, and also looking at uh, the statement uh, that Jesus made where he said, I am the light of the world. We talked, talked a lot about space, talked a lot about light and uh, the importance of light and uh, all of the things that light brings um, into the world that are really necessary and good. Um, so I, you know, I'm rambling now. I probably rambled quite a bit during the message too. Uh, but I still hope you enjoy uh, this message, the first in our new series called Sacred Space. Uh, this is I Am the Light of the World. Hello. Hello again. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the Foundry Church, where we're all about a better you and a better world. My name is Joseph. Uh, I'm actually the worship pastor here. I'm preaching this week because literally everyone else is out of town. Um, uh, I, I don't know if it's just because it's like President's Day weekend or whatever, but uh, very light week um, in terms of who's here. Uh, that actually includes my wife, who is off with uh, her mom and sisters and nieces having their annual uh, getaway weekend. So I hope you're having a wonderful weekend, sweetheart. Uh, ordinarily, you know, I, I try not to be involved with worship team uh, when I'm uh, when I'm preaching, but again, like. Everybody being gone extended to worship team this week, too. It's just one of those weeks. So I'm sorry. Uh, you got to hear me sing. You got to hear me talk. Um, I promise I'm not trying to make it the Joseph show. That's just how it worked out this week. We're actually starting a new series today, too, which I'm very excited about. Uh, series is called Sacred Space. And uh, there's a lot of meaning packed into those two little words. And I'm looking forward to unpacking that over the next 10 weeks. That's right. 10 weeks, um, which if you're paying attention, you'll notice will take us a few weeks past Easter, right? This is the time of year where we normally start a series that leads up to Easter. We have in the past referred to that as our Easter series, Um, but this week we're starting a series that goes past Easter. We're going to talk about that a little bit today too. Uh, This past Wednesday was, of course, say it out loud, Valentine's Day. I heard a lot of Ash Wednesday. Are you guys in trouble? Did you forget Valentine's Day? Last Wednesday was Valentine's Day, but it was also Ash Wednesday. It's Valentine's Day because it was February 14th, and that's when we celebrate that. But also Ash Wednesday because it was 46 days before Easter, which, as we all know, is, uh, always falls on the first Sunday after the first full moon that occurs on or after the vernal equinox. Simple. Um, Some would say we have overcomplicated that just a bit. 
but Ash Wednesday is, is the kickoff to a season in the church calendar that we call Lent. It's the Lenten season. Well, we know, the staff knows from talking with you guys, hearing your stories, that for a lot of you, uh, your story is some variation on the following. Uh, you grew up Catholic or Episcopal or some other either very liturgical or very strictly religious tradition. You ran away from that as far and as fast as you could, as soon as you could. Uh, and then you found your way back to faith as an adult, perhaps when you became a parent. Uh, you tried this church or that church, and it was fine, uh, but you didn't feel like home, it didn't feel like a fit, and somebody invited you here, and you've been here for a while, and you're enjoying it, and we're glad that you're here. Um, and so we know that like, compared with a lot of typical American like, non-liturgical churches, uh, we have a higher than normal population of people who understand Lent and what Lent is all about. But for those of you who don't know, or maybe for those of you who grew up in a church tradition that perhaps emphasized the wrong things about Lent, here's quickly what we're talking about. Uh, Lent in the church calendar is meant to be this season of, of introspection, of looking inward, of, um, of prayer, of fasting. It's meant to parallel the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness after his baptism, uh, praying, fasting, uh, being tempted, it's a period of preparation, of, uh, of entering into the grief and the brokenness of the world, of denying ourselves, repenting of our own brokenness, and ultimately realizing our own helplessness uh, in the face of God in our human condition. The purpose of all this is to enter into this dark moment, culminating in the darkness and the tragedy of Good Friday, the loneliness, the emptiness, the uncertainty of Holy Saturday, so that we can fully experience the joy and the light and the relief and the release of Easter Sunday. Lent is like a long and engrossing book where, sure, you can skip to the end and you can find out how the story ends, but you will miss the depth of the experience if you don't wade through the whole thing. Uh, so as I said before, for the last several years, we've, we've made a real effort to observe Lent uh, as a church, uh, as, as a season, even going so far as to call this series our Lent series instead of our Easter series. Uh, the early church, though, I love this, in their nascent wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit, uh, they, they had the Lent season that leads up to the Easter, but then they also developed this tradition of Eastertide. It's the season coming out of Easter that is meant to just be a full sort of celebration uh, of the experience of salvation and, and all that kind of stuff. And traditionally, it was uh, also a 40-day season. So you had a 40-day season of wading into the depth and the muck and the mire of the human experience, followed by a 40-day season of experiencing the joy and the light and the release of Easter. Uh, and that brings this real sense of balance, doesn't it? Right? We see this sort of dualism in a lot of world religions and a lot of, like we see it in the, the world around us. We have day, we have night. There are times of the year where we have more day and less night and times of the year where we have more night and less day. And these things all sort of go in cycles. They sort of balance each other out. But pretty early on, and I just love this, pretty early on uh, in church tradition, uh, especially in the West part of, of you know, Christianity, there grew up a tradition of making Eastertide longer than Lent. So now, not only uh, is there balance 
between darkness and light, but there's more light. And I just think that's awesome. I just love it. So, so this series, this spring series, instead of uh, leading up to and culminating on Easter, we're gonna carry it a few weeks past. We're not gonna go all the way through the Easter tide season, uh, but we're gonna go a few weeks past Easter. I'm just, I'm really excited about that. And uh, we're gonna start things off today by talking about darkness and light and the cosmic Christ. Uh, we're focused on this whole series around the idea of the cosmic Christ. That's part of the play on words with sacred space, right? Normally when we use the phrase sacred space, we're talking about a, a worship center, a, a place like we are sitting right now. Um, we're reminded through various stories in scripture that literally anywhere you are can be a sacred space, right? Moses was just out in the middle of the desert and all of a sudden a bush started talking to him and said, take off your feet or take off your sandals. Keep your feet on. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. So we know that sacred space can be anywhere. Uh, and so we're, we're focusing on the idea of the cosmic Christ, which is this view of Jesus as the Christ uh, that emphasizes the extent to which the Christ's love and concern for and sacrifice on behalf of extends to all of creation. Uh, it's a pretty ancient idea. It goes at least as far back as uh, the writings of a guy named Irenaeus, who was one of the early church fathers. He wrote towards the tail end of the second century CE. And his theory of atonement talks about how all of humanity was created good, but was corrupted by sin, uh, tainted by sin, and then how all of creation was, in his words, recapitulated uh, or restored under the new headship of Christ. So for Irenaeus, this, this headship wasn't limited to humans on earth, but it extended into every aspect of creation, every aspect of creation, what we would come to call the cosmos, hence the name cosmic Christ. And this was one of the most dominant views about how atonement worked, about what the rule of Christ looked like through all of like the early period of church history and in the Eastern part of, of Christianity for a long, long time after that. I, I love the word cosmos. Um, how many of you like remember watching cosmos on TV in the early 80s? Or maybe if you're younger in, I think it was like 2012, they, they did an updated version of cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson instead of uh, Carl Sagan. I love, I love the word cosmos. Normally when we use that word, we're talking about space, right? We're talking about the universe. We're talking about out there, huge distances, amazing sights. But the Greek word cosmos, that the word cosmos comes from, actually has a lot more color than that. Going all the way back to Homer, right, which was a form of Greek that predates the Greek we find in the New Testament by like six or 700 years. Cosmos meant this. Uh, an apt and harmonious arrangement or constitution, right? So like order. Uh, it also meant ornament, decoration, adornment. So cosmos was meant to describe things that were just beautiful. It could also mean the world, i.e. like the universe, all of creation. It could also mean the circle of the earth, meaning the earth specifically, and it could also mean the inhabitants of the world. It could mean you and me. So basically, cosmos is order, beauty, creation, earth, and humanity. 
cosmos is this word that just kind of refers to everything in existence. And for Irenaeus and for the early believers, uh, the dominant idea <clears throat> about Christ's work in the cosmos is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God had placed the cosmic Christ in headship, in lordship over all of creation. And this is why Paul writes to the Ephesians uh, this here, he says, there's, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called uh, to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Right? Paul's like, this, thing, this whole thing, all of creation, it's all, there's a sense of oneness that comes through the headship of Christ. We're all we're all in this together underneath the cosmic Christ. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the out there cosmos, the beauty and the vastness of the cosmos. Here's some images from the Webb uh, Space Telescope, which if you're unfamiliar, that's the newest and most powerful telescope um, that's operational right now that, that humanity's ever created. It sits in orbit three times as far away as the moon. It's way out there, and it comes with incredible images like this one. This is the Southern Ring Nebula. Uh, this is actually the same nebula in two different spectrums of light, neither of which we can see with our own eyes. The one on the left is near infrared, so it's just beneath the part of the spectrum that we can see with our eyes. And the one on the right is mid-infrared, so it's a little bit even farther away. And I just love the different, like, first of all, it's beautiful. Right? It's gorgeous. And, and uh, I, I love the way the different spectrums of light reveal different details. Right? Like uh, on, in the mid-infrared here, you can kind of see, this is actually a double star. There's two stars right there. You can't see that in the, in the near-infrared. And it's just, it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful thing that exists in space. I don't even know how far away. I didn't write that down. It's the Southern Ring Nebula. It's amazing. Here's another one. This is the first, uh, what they call a deep field image that the Webb Telescope took. Uh, this is actually, on, on the Webb Telescope, uh, anything you see that's got these like six uh, uh, rays of lens flare, those are individual stars, right? Those are stars in our own galaxy. And everything else is a galaxy. In fact, right here in the middle, there's these white kind of blob-shaped galaxies, and you can see there's a little bit of like this circular distortion around that. That's because the Webb telescope is using the gravity from those galaxies in the middle as a lens to see farther into space behind it. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. And everything, I, again, I didn't write down the number, I should have, but it's well over a thousand galaxies are visible in this picture in addition to the stars, you know, that are from our own galaxy. That's, that's incredible. Uh, one number that I do remember from that is that that image represents about one thirtieth of the width of the moon. So if you can picture the moon at night, one thirtieth of that width, that's in the background. That's such a tiny portion of the sky. It's incredible. We have an older telescope in space called the Hubble Space Telescope. It's in a near-Earth orbit, and it does more with like the visual uh, light spectrum. But here's, here's a few images from that. Does anybody know what this is? 
This is a star called Proxima Centauri. With Hubble images, instead of the six lens flares, you get these four. Proxima Centauri is the closest star to our own sun. It's about 4.25 light years away. That's unbelievably far away, right? That's, that's if you left the earth at the speed of light, you instantaneously achieve the speed of light and you maintain that speed for the entire time. It would still take you more than four years to get to the closest thing to us in the galaxy. It's unbelievable. But this is Proxima Centauri. Proxima meaning like proximity or closeness. Centauri because it's actually a part of a three-star system called Alpha Centauri. There's Alpha Centauri A, Alpha Centauri B, and then Proxima Centauri. It's amazing that this is like the best image we've got of the closest thing to us in the galaxy. Uh, in our, it's, it's just incredible. It's amazing. Here's another one. This is one of the most famous images that Hubble ever produced. This is actually an updated version for the 25th anniversary of the Hubble. This is called the Pillars of Creation. Has anybody seen this one before? Yeah, the, the Pillars of Creation. This is a part of uh, a nebula called the Eagle Nebula. And these are just huge uh, pillars and columns of like interstellar gas and dust. It's called the Pillars of Creation because it's these types of areas of gas and dust that eventually coalesce to form stars. And then stars are sort of necessary to life as we understand it uh, in the universe. This is beautiful, and this is in the visible light spectrum. So if you, if you could take a spaceship to the Eagle Nebula, this is more or less what you would see. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Here's another one. This image got cut off just a little bit. Um, when we were putting it together. This is, uh, th this is a, a spiral galaxy, obviously, and you can see there's a little more space uh, around this arm. That's because just off frame down here, there's a second galaxy that uh, scientists believe has sort of passed through this galaxy, and the whole thing kind of looks like a rose. It's really pretty. There's, there's a little stem down here. You can find all these images online. Uh, and then this galaxy sort of looks like rose petals. You know, it's just like, why does that exist if not to be looked at and enjoyed? It's, it's beautiful. And then there's this one. Right, what you're looking at here is known as an extreme star cluster. This is one of the most active uh, areas in our entire galaxy for forming new stars. Again, you've got all the gas and dust here. And then you've got this little space that's been carved out because all that gas and dust has coalesced and it's formed all, all these bright blue dots with the four you know, lens flare things. Those are all stars. Those are all new young stars. And there's, there's some older yellowish and reddish stars in here too. This is incredible to think about. It's, it's even more incredible to think about, you know, I mentioned Proxima Centauri was 4.2 light years away. From here, that's actually a bit on the close side of things. The average distance between stars in our galaxy is about five light years. So just think about the size and the distance that is represented just in this photo when all of these stars are on average five light years away from each other. Space, the cosmos, it's vast, it's big, and it's beautiful, and it's 
it's awe-inspiring, it's, it's humbling, it's intriguing, it's inviting, and it's challenging. And for everything that we know and that we can observe and that we can learn and explain and describe, there are dozens of things we have no idea about that we can't explain. It sounds a bit like God, doesn't it? Psalm 19, one through four says this, uh, the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. It's very much like what Paul wrote uh, in Romans 1. Uh, verse 20, I think, where he says that from the very beginning of creation, God's like, divine nature, his eternal you know, power, all this stuff has been revealed to people through what God has made, through extreme star clusters and galaxies that look like roses, and stars, and nebula. It's incredible. Let's look a bit closer to home, though, and let's see if we can find the Christ there, too. Uh, you may be aware of the basic biology of, of your body. Um, your, your own body, you as an organism, uh, are made up of various systems, right? We have a circulatory system, a skeletal system, a digestive system. Let's use digestive system uh, as an example here. So those systems are made up of different organs. In our digestive system, we have a tongue, we have an esophagus, a stomach, intestines, all that sorts of stuff. Those various organs are made up of different types of tissue, right? There's muscle in your tongue and your esophagus. There's also mucus uh, uh, tissue. Uh, there's stomach lining, all that kind of stuff. Those different tissues are made up of different types of cells, right? Uh, smooth muscle cells, mucus cells, lots of others with very complicated names. Those cells are made up of different molecules. Those molecules are made up of different atoms, Right, and so if, like from the ground up, you have um, the, the atomic level, which is like atoms and, and molecules. You have the cellular level, where those things form living cells. Uh, and then you have tissue level, and then organ level, and then system level, and then you know, you, you're an organism at the top. And all the way down on the cellular level, there's these other chemicals called proteins. There's lots of different proteins that do lots of different things in your body, uh, but there's a family of proteins called laminins. Laminins. Laminins, according to biologists, and I'm just gonna read some science-y stuff that I uh, learned this week. Um, I don't understand most of this, but I'm gonna read it to you. <laughs> uh, laminins, according to biologists, are vital to biological activity. Uh, they influence cell differentiation, which I think means becoming one type of cell and not a different type of cell. Uh, cell migration, I guess cells move from time to time. Uh, and cell adhesion, that's the really important one. They function to bind molecules that make up parts of the cell membrane. They help anchor organized tissue cells into what is called the basement membrane, which as I understand it, there's the, the laminins that form this, this layer that then cells will come attach themselves to, and that's what gives different tissues in our body structure. Uh, so it's pretty important. Uh, they're integral to the structural scaffolding of almost every tissue in an organism. 
To put it another way, as best I understand it, without laminins in your body, your skin would dissolve, right? We, we have a, an epidermis that's a layer of skin cells. We have a dermis underneath that's a different type of cell that's in a different layer than the epidermis, and those layers are kept in place and structured by these proteins called laminins. All the cells that make up your muscles, right? If you can picture, like from biology in high school, the way the, the muscles, like, go to different places in our body. I don't have muscles here, but I'm motioning because you understand what I'm saying. Um, your muscles would separate apart from one another. To put it bluntly, you, you would literally fall apart if all of the laminins in your body were removed. This is how laminins are drawn in science textbooks. This is like the scientific diagram of a laminin protein. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, um, this is how laminin is drawn in textbooks uh, to illustrate its basic structure. This, this is what laminin actually looks like under an electron microscope. This is several different ones here. So you've, you've got one that sort of has that cross shape, but most of the other ones, they're, they're a lot more like wibbly wobbly. So I, like, I'm not trying to say that uh, uh, that laminins are like the presence of Christ in, in, an, in a living organism. But the point remains, you've got this, uh, this protein that's essential to your body, literally holding together and not falling apart into its constituent tissues and cells. Laminins not the Christ in your body, but the fact that there is something that exists that literally holds things together, I find is, is pretty interesting. Particularly when Paul also writes to the Colossians in Colossians 1, for in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Please don't hear me saying something I'm not, okay? Uh, I'm not saying that laminin is proof of divine anything. If you go home and look this up, you'll find a lot of very well-meaning Christians on the internet loudly saying that laminin is proof of God's existence, that the cross of Christ is the literal thing that holds all of creation together. You will also find a lot of people telling those Christians they need to learn more about science. I'm not trying to add to all that noise. What I am saying is that Deep down on the cellular level of like living organisms and even beyond that, there's something that provides order and structure. You could even say purpose and beauty to the atoms and the molecules and the cells that make up living things in the cosmos. The cosmic Christ is present at this level of creation too. It's an interesting facet of both scientific theories about how the universe came to be and like scriptural accounts that they both begin with light. They both begin with this great like flaring forth into the darkness. Did you realize that? The, the scientific idea of the Big Bang says that about 13.7, maybe 13.8 billion years ago, all of the matter and energy that exists in the entire universe was compressed into an incredibly small area of space and uh, that, it, that it burst forth from there uh, in you know, what we call the Big Bang. 
Um, it's like all this matter and energy and light, it's all, it's all entangled too, right? Uh, physics tells us that matter can't be created or destroyed. It can only change forms, right? So like if you have a fire pit and you burn a log in your fire pit, at the end, you've got this little tiny pile of ashes that are just totally insubstantial. We haven't really destroyed that log, right? Physics would say what you've done is taken most of the potential energy in that log and you've turned it into heat. You've had a thermal reaction. You've, you've dissipated the energy of that log into heat. Uh, and what's left, this ash, is, is just kind of what survives the fire. Um, the resulting pile of ashes is way smaller than the log that burned. But again, you've just kind of changed form. So like science tells us that everything that exists in the universe was present at the beginning in this great flaring forth of light and heat and energy and matter. In Genesis 1, there's chaos, there's the void, there's darkness. And then in verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. There's this great flaring forth of light into creation and God goes on to separate the light from the darkness and the waters above from the waters below and the land from the sea and then God creates things to inhabit the heavens and the sky and the sea and the earth and all this stuff. And finally, humanity. And this is interesting. How does it say God creates humans? Out of the dust of the earth. Out of the dust of the earth, God formed humans and then breathed the breath of life into us. This whole process though, just like the scientific theories about the universe, it begins with this great flaring forth of light into the void. Light is pretty important. You know what I mean? Light, uh, light warms. In the, in the cold, empty nothingness of space, our sun produces light and the heat that goes with it, which kind of allows life to exist on our planet, right? If our sun goes out eight minutes later, everything changes on Earth. We need the sun, we need the heat and the light from the sun. Light awakens, uh, thus the term enlightenment, right? It also, it, it literally awakens us, daytime, um, but it also like metaphorically wakes us up when we see the light. We have some new understanding, some new truth, some new way of seeing things. Light makes learning possible. Uh, again, both literally and metaphorically, it enables us to see. And when we see, we can observe. And when we observe, we can learn and make predictions and test hypotheses and analyze results. We can understand. Light illuminates. When we see things clearly in the light of day, it opens us up, it disarms us, it enables us to deal with reality instead of dealing with our darkest imaginings and worst case scenarios. Light uh, stands up to depression. Light stands up to cynicism and to boredom. These things weigh us down, they make us feel heavy, they make us feel dark. And when we're in the darkness, even just a little bit of light can make us feel light and hopeful. Light transforms darkness. It, uh, it, it dispels darkness. It displaces darkness. When you're in a dark room and you turn on a flashlight, the light wins every time. That's what it does. And these are all sort of statements that seem like they could be applied to Jesus too, 
right? The cosmic Christ. Uh, The Gospel of John begins with this beautiful uh, poetic passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. That word overtake can also be overcome. It can also be understand, right? The darkness didn't comprehend the light. John begins with this beautiful poetic passage, this account of creation. He places Jesus, who he uses the word logos, which means word, right alongside God during the whole process. It's really intentional that John used this word logos, in uh, the Old Testament, we see a lot of times the word of the Lord is personified, right? When the word of the Lord appears in a psalm or from a prophet, it's a way of indicating God's presence, God's will. And so to, to talk about the logos being present at all creation and to equate that with Jesus, the Jewish listeners, the Jewish readers of John's gospel would have, would have resonated with that. They would have known exactly what he was talking about. And for his Greek readers, logos was this philosophical term that was used to describe like an intermediate agency, like an agency by which God created uh, the material world and by which God communicates with the material world. So for them, the logos was this bridge between a transcendental God and a material universe. And then John even goes one step further saying that what has come into being in the word, in the Logos, in Christ, is life. And that light, that life is what? It's the light of all people. Light that warms, light that illuminates, light that transforms and dispels darkness. Light shines in the darkness of the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Light is pretty important. Jesus himself said on a couple of occasions that he was the light of the world. He he claimed that title for himself. Uh, Probably the most famous of these passages is in John chapter 8. Jesus is at the temple teaching people, and after a brief interruption, uh, he goes on to tell the people, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When we walk in the light, when we follow the light, there's so much packed into these just couple of sentences here. So much that leads us towards worship of Jesus, of ascribing honor and and merit and, and devotion to Jesus. So much that speaks of looking to Jesus the Christ as the source of light and life in the world. There's one other light of the world passage statement that Jesus makes, and it's a little bit different. It comes from Matthew 5. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He begins with the Beatitudes, and almost right after that, he says this to his listeners, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. You are the light of the world. Jesus takes all of this meaning around Light, all this symbolism and metaphor that goes along with light and being the light of the world. And he tells his listeners, that's you. 
You are created in the image of God. You bear the divine name. And so church, the same is true for us. When people look at us, what will they see? We saw photos earlier of interstellar dust clouds, cosmic debris that's left over from the Big Bang or, or the you know, supernovas and the destruction of older stars. The, the forces of gravity and, and heat and pressure and nuclear fusion uh, take these, these clouds of dust and gas and turn them into stars, which fuse hydrogen into helium, which is the next heaviest element. And then over time, uh, begins to fuse helium also into heavier elements like oxygen and nitrogen and carbon and uh, sodium and iron. And these elements, they get spewed out into space when a star dies and explodes and they eventually find their way into planets like Earth. And what's fascinating is that all those same elements can be found in the human body. Uh, it has been rightly said that we are stardust. Uh, you know, sometimes Lent gets a bit of a bad rap uh, to people who don't understand it or who, who have run from a liturgical church tradition. It can come across as a season to beat up on yourself, to focus on how bad you are, how bad the world is, how broken it all is to focus on our own inadequacies and powerlessness, how we are just dust in the wind. And in fact, uh, one of the key phrases that's a part of the liturgy for Ash Wednesday says, remember, you are dust, and to dust you will return. To say that you feel like dust is usually a negative thing, uh, but somehow to, stay, uh, to say that you are stardust feels better, doesn't it? Uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We, we say this to each other as a way to indicate our smallness against the backdrop of the cosmos, right? Existence stretches in the past, way, way into the past, long before any of us were here. And existence will continue long after all of us are gone. In our best moments, this can make us like grab a hold of and value every moment that we get to experience. And at our worst, it makes us feel small and insignificant and meaningless. The, the poet and author and pastor, uh, Jan Richardson, says this in her poem, Blessing the Dust. All those days you felt like dust, like dirt, as if all you had to do was turn your face toward the wind and be scattered to the four corners or swept away by the smallest breath as insubstantial. Did you not know what the Holy One can do with dust? The God who takes dust and turns it into bright light and beautiful galaxies and awe-inspiring vistas of color and size and shape and movement. The God who takes that same dust and turns it into the earth, the vast and varied and beautiful, abundant, life-sustaining earth. That same God takes that same dust and 
turns it into you. Turns it into laminin that, that holds your cells together into tissue. Turns it into lungs that breathe the breath of life. Turns it into hands and feet that can move through and interact with the world. That same God takes that same dust and turns it into eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind to understand, a heart to ponder. God takes dust and turns it into the light of the world. Lent is not meant to be a season of beating up on ourselves relentlessly. It's meant to be a season of facing ourselves honestly, of acknowledging our sins and our shortcomings, yes. Of praying for forgiveness for those sins and shortcomings, yes. But more than that, it's about doing those things as a way to release them so that we can freely receive the mercy and love and light and life and joy that God offers through Jesus. It's about acknowledging and praying against the darkness so that we can receive and bask in and enjoy the light of the world. And there it is, uh, the first message in this new series. Um, I, was, I was very struck by that poem um, that, uh, that I shared the beginning of in the message, that line in particular, uh, did you not know what the Holy One can do with dust? Uh, I just, I love it. Um, there's more to that poem. That was only about a third of it. Uh, if you were watching live, um, or if you want to go back on our YouTube channel and check out the live broadcast, as part of the closeout, I actually shared probably the last third uh, of, of the message, of the, the poem, as well in the closeout, where uh, she goes on to say, um, and again, the, the poem was about uh, the ashes that, that Christians will have put on their forehead during Ash Wednesday. And she goes on to say, let us be marked, not for shame, uh, not for, um, you know, how bad we are. Let us not be marked for, um, uh, for false humility or anything like that. Um, but let us be marked for uh, essentially just God's glory and for what God can do with the dust, what God can do with the stardust that, that blazes forth from us in our bones. Uh, it's really beautiful. I'm paraphrasing it badly here, uh, but I highly recommend you go check out, uh, go find it online somewhere. The poem is called Blessing the Dust. The author is Jan Richardson. Uh, she's a Methodist pastor and also a poet and an author. Um, yeah, and I just, I, I, had, I had so much fun researching and learning uh, for this message, um, probably more than was good for me. Um, but I hope that you enjoyed it. hope that it meant something to you. hope that it has been a, a good kickoff to your Lent season. Uh, and that's going to do it for this episode of the Foundry Church Podcast. Uh, we'll see you soon. Have a great week.